You know, as, as I was thinking about that song, I don't know if, uh, if you guys know that, but most of that phraseology and the theme of that is taken directly from Psalm 23, which was written um, by King David, who was a shepherd himself, who God like exalted to the place of king and, and who spoke about like God as his good shepherd and that because God's his shepherd, he, shall, he, he will not want, he doesn't want, he doesn't fear and one day he will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. You know, it's interesting that, that uh, David would write that because as we're studying in 1 Samuel, and if you're just joining us, we are in 1 Samuel chapter 23 today. Um, and, and it's the story of the struggle between Saul and David, Saul, the reigning king of, of Israel, who's like walking in, who's completely walked away from the Lord. And as we'll see, is like worse than any of the kings of the nations. And David, who was anointed by God himself, who was chosen by God to be the king in accordance with his heart for his people. And, and, but, but at this point in time, like the path that David's walking on, in fact, for the rest of the book, the path that David walks on is not a, is not a smooth like path that without any obstacles, it's a path that leads him through the valley of the shadow of death. It's a path that leads him into dry places. And, and for David to be able to write that he doesn't want, and his cup overflows, he doesn't fear like it's just a testimony to the fact that when God is with him, he knows that no one can be against him. You know, as we get into First uh, Samuel chapter 23 this morning, um, you know, what we've seen over the last couple of weeks is that all of these trials that God is taking David through kind of gave birth to different hymns. You know, we saw or different psalms. They're songs that are written and recorded for us in the book in the Bible called the Psalms. And last week we saw that there was two psalms taken from um, his, his experiences. The week before that, there was two psalms taken from his experience. This week, there's a psalm that he wrote in response to his experiences. And, and part of it says this in Psalm 54. Um, verses 1 through 4, he says, Save me, O God, by your name, and vindicate me by your power. Hear my prayer, O God. Give ear to the words of, the, of my mouth. For strangers have risen against me, and violent men have sought my life. They have not set God before them. Then he says this, Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the sustainer of my soul. You know, as we get into the story, I want you to remember that David said here that strangers have risen against him. He's talking about people who aren't even part of the nation of Israel and David's perception. And what we're going to find out is that, in fact, the people that rose against him would be part of the tribes of Israel, but they, they did not set God before him. And so in David's mind and in the eyes of the Lord, like that they're, they're strangers because they're not walking um, in faithfulness to the Lord. You know, ironically, our text in chapter 23 here comes on the heels of verse 23 from the chapter before where um, I always get these names confused. There's a Himalek and a Bimelech and a bunch of Lex. Um, It's, oh, it's Abiathar. Abiathar. It's not even a Lek. Um, Abiathar, like, like Saul, was slaughtering the priests of God because he thought that they had helped David escape him. And Abiathar was the only priest who was able to escape. And, and ironically, at the end of verse 23, David says, you know, stay with me and do not be afraid because we're both being hunted together, I'm paraphrasing, for you are safe with me. Like there is safety with David even though all of the circumstances would say that there's not. And what we're going to see is because God is with David, 
because God's word comes to David. God's like the worship of God is associated with David because God's blessing is upon David that even though all of the circumstances of life say something else, that, that there's safety with David. You know, our text is going to really break out uh, in three main points. Like, we're going to see that God strengthens the hand of his king, talking about David, um, amidst those who abandon him in verses 1 through 14. If you've ever been abandoned by people that should have stood with you, you'll, you'll feel some of the weight of that. Um, he strengthens the hand of his king through his, the least likely source in verses 15 through 18, and then amidst those who betray him in verses 19 through 28. This whole chapter is filled with betrayal and, and disloyalty. And God, but, but God stands with David through it all. So please stand with me. I'm going to read the first section of our text. Um, and then I'll pray and then we'll get into the text together. This is God's word for his church. First Samuel chapter 23. Then God told David saying, oh, then they told David saying, behold, the Philistines are fighting against Keilah. That's how you pronounce it. Keilah. And they are plundering the threshing floors. So David inquired of the Lord saying, shall I go and attack those Philistines? And the Lord said to David, go and attack the Philistines and deliver Keilah. But David's men said to him, behold, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more than if we go up against, go to Keilah against the ranks of the Philistines. Then David inquired of the Lord once more, and the Lord answered him and said, Arise, go down to Keilah, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. So David and his men went to Keilah and fought with the Philistines, and he led away their livestock and struck them with a great slaughter. Thus David delivered the inhabitants of Keilah. Now it came about when Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, fled to David at Keilah, that he came down with an ephod in his hand. When it was told Saul that David had come to Keilah, Saul said, God has delivered him into my hand, for he shut himself in by entering a city with double gates and bars. So Saul summoned all the people for war to go down to Keilah to besiege David and his men. Now David knew that Saul was plotting evil against him, so he said to Abiathar the priest, bring the ephod here. Then David said, O Lord, God of Israel, your servant has heard for certain that Saul is seeking to come to Keilah to destroy the city on my account. Will the men of Keilah surrender me into his hand? Will Saul come down just as thy servant has heard? O Lord, God of Israel, I pray, tell your servant. And the Lord said, he will come down. Then David said, will the men of Keilah surrender me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, they will surrender you. Then David and his men, about 600, arose and departed from Keilah, and they went wherever they could go. When it was told Saul that David had escaped from Keilah, he gave up the pursuit. And David stayed in the wilderness in the strongholds and remained in the hill country of the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul sought him every day, but God did not deliver him into his hand. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word, and I thank you for your faithfulness to your people. Um, that is true even when circumstances seem um, like it's not. And so, Father, I just pray for us this morning that we would be encouraged by your faithfulness to us, that um, you would empower me to speak um, that word of encouragement to your people, and that we'd be built up because of our time here. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. You know, before we get into these verses, you know, if you glance down at verse 6, um, what verse 6 clues us in at is that when Abiathar fled um, from Saul after Saul slaughtered all the priests, that he actually came to David. So verse 23 of chapter 22 actually happens in the city of Keilah. It says in verse 6, Now it came about when Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, fled to David at Keilah, he came down with an ephod in his hand. 
What that means for us, and, and the reason why that's important, is that we're, we're meant to contrast the events that just happened at the end of chapter 23 with the, the I mean, uh, chapter 22 with the events that are happening at the beginning of chapter 23. Because w- at the very same time that Saul is rising up against the, the, the priests of God and slaughtering the priests of God and slaughtering all their families and all of their children, that's happening, simultaneously to that, David and the situation with Keilah, David goes down to Keilah to deliver the, the city. So, you know, if it was a movie, you'd kind of have this split screen thing going on. You'd have this like horrible thing where Saul is butchering innocent priests, the ones who God had ordained to like facilitate worship. And at the same time, while that's going on, you have King, you have David doing what Saul should have done and gone down and delivered the city of Keilah. Keilah was a an Israelite city. It was on the border of, of Philistia. And so the Philistines would often come and attack those border towns. And ironically, it's a city that belonged to the tribe of Judah. So it's David's own like home tribe city, which when, when the story plays out, we're going to see like kind of like adds insult to injury when they end up like not being loyal to him. But this is what's going on, is that David and his men are hiding out in, in the forest of... I don't, pull the map up. I can see it on the map. Um, on the forest of Hereth. I think I've got a pointer, if I can pull this off. Um, maybe? It just My pointer just... Oh, there it is. Um, oh, you've got it, Edie? It's the forest of Hereth, right there. There it is. So he's hiding out in the forest of Hereth, there in the middle. And then the city of Keilah is just to the left of that. Um, and it's and it's about the city of Keilah is about ten miles from uh, Harith, and it's also about ten miles from the city of Gath. And so um, there's there's this. So David and his men find out that the Philistines are coming in at harvest time when the when the people are just bringing in all the fruit of their labor from the entire year. And they're plundering the threshing floors, which means that they're raiding the people of Israel, like probably killing them and taking all of their grain and like, leaving them without food for the rest of the winter. And so David prayed, David asked the Lord, hey, should I go down and should we go save them? And the Lord's like, yeah, go save them. Because David's got 400 men at this point. He's hiding out in the forest. But you have to remember that David's a wanted man. So while Saul is like running this kingdom where he's just taking from people and where he's like using his power to help his friend and punish his enemies, David, on the other hand, um, who's, who's a wanted man, like decides like, I'm going to go put myself at risk expose myself because I've been in hiding to go deliver this city. So like he's operating, you know, like while Saul's caring for himself, David's putting himself at risk. While Saul's slaughtering God's people, David goes to deliver God's people. David's acting as a good king should. But I love what happens next in our text because in verse verse 3, but David's men said to him, behold, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more than if we go to Keilah against the ranks of the Philistines? So David and his 400 men, if you remember last week, if you were here last week, God had told them to leave their stronghold that was outside of the land of Israel and return to the land of Israel. So they, they left this area that gave them like, you know, military superiority. It was a stronghold to go like hide out in the forest where they're vulnerable. And interestingly enough, David goes to the land of Judah. He goes to his home, like home turf, like he's from the tribe of Judah. 
um, where he would be familiar as a shepherd. But his men, they're like, you know, it's bad enough that we're back here in Israel where we're being hunted as criminals, let alone when we go down and stir up the Philistines against us. If we go down to Keilah, we're going to not only like expose ourselves to King Saul, give up our hiding place, but we're going to like upset the Philistines. So lose, we'll lose for us, David. And I just love what happens next because God's so patient with his people. So David's like, let me go get a second opinion, right? So he goes back to the Lord again, and he's like, hey, Lord, is this really what you want us to do? Doesn't seem like the best idea. Verse 4, then David inquired of the Lord once more, and the Lord answered him and said, Arise, go to Keilah, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. So David and his men went to Keilah and fought with the Philistines, and he laid away their livestock and struck them with a great slaughter and delivered the inhabitants of Keilah. So like there's this, there's this battle. The Lord says, go do it. They, they in obedience to the Lord, go down. They attack, this, they attack the Philistines. They deliver the citizens of Keilah. It says they took the Philistines' livestock. Most likely they had all of these animals to haul the grain back to Israel. So not only did they like, rescue the grain, but they got a whole bunch of like, animals to go with it. There's this great deliverance. And apparently, like, David and his men are celebrating um, in the city of Keilah with the Keilites because what happens next in verse 6, um, uh, like, turns our attention to King Saul, starting in verse 6. Now, it came about that when Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, fled to David at Keilah, that he came down with an ephod on his hand. And here it is in verse 7. When it was told Saul that David had come to Keilah, Saul said, God has delivered him into my hand, for he has shut himself in by entering a city with double gates and bars. You know, one of the advantages to having a city with gates and bars is it keeps people out. But in Saul's mind, the advantage to David being in a city with gates and bars and walls was that it kept David in. He's like, oh, now I not only know where he he is, but he's trapped in this city. If I besiege the city, I can get the people of Keilah to give him up or I can just destroy the city. So he he has this plan. Verse, verse, uh, So verse eight, so Saul summoned all the people for war. So he sends out word throughout the whole land, musters the entire armies of Israel to go up and attack uh, the city of Keilah and David and his men. And then David um, finds out about it in verse nine. And then he asks Abiathar the priest to bring the ephod to him. So it's really important what's going on here with this ephod and Abiathar and the word of the God that came to him in verses 1 through 5. Because we saw in verses 1 through 5 is that God was speaking to David directly, giving him his word, giving him direction and guidance, probably through the prophet Gad, who appeared in our text last week. He's probably still there, and so Gad's probably, God's probably speaking through Gad to David. So you have like this prophetic word coming to David where God's speaking to David Then you have Abiathar the priest who comes with an ephod in his hand. You'll see this recurrence of the word hand over and over again. Like, will you give the the Philistines into my hand? Here, Abiathar came with the the ephod in his hand. Like, the ephod was this thing that the priest wore. We don't know how it works, but God communicated to the priest through the ephod. They could ask questions and there was these Urim and Thummim th- things that I think are kind of like dice that God would guide to like help like through his priests to guide his people. We don't, know, we don't know exactly how it works. We know that God communicated through it. So what you see in verses 1 through 5 is God is speaking to David through like his prophets. And here you have David speaking to, 
I mean, God speaking to David through the priests, the ones that were established to mediate the relationship of God and man. Because God asks Abiathar to come to bring the ephod. And so what you're seeing is like God's like affirmation and his support and his, his strengthening of David because both the prophets, the word of God is coming to David through the prophets and through the priests. They're all aligned under David. God is on David's side. Then you find out. So David asks again. He asks of God through, through Abiathar. Um, verse 10, O Lord God of Israel, your servant has heard for certain that Saul is seeking to come to Keilah to destroy the city on my account. You know, David's probably heard the word that went out over Israel to muster the troops. And, and listen to how he responds to the Lord. O Lord God of Israel. It's like his formal title. Like he recognizes that Saul's not in charge of what's going on, that David's not in charge of what's going on. You know, one of the ones in charge is that the Lord God of Israel is in charge. And this is a national problem that's going on here, that the supposed king of Israel is coming up to attack one of the cities of Israel on David's, like, because of David. And then he, look how David refers to himself, O Lord God of Israel, your servant. And it's such a different perspective than King Saul. King Saul elevates himself above the Lord, even attacked the priests of the Lord. And here David like, is humbly recognizing, like, my, my role is one to serve the Lord God of Israel and to serve his people. And he asks this question, two questions. Will the men of Keilah surrender me into his hand and will Saul come down just as your servant heard? He says, I've got good intel, but... Be good to, for you to confirm it, you know, thumbs up, thumbs down. Right. Is Saul going to come? Yeah, Saul's going to come. Are they going to surrender me into his hand? Yeah, they're going to surrender you. Think about that for a second. Like, David just came and delivered the entire city, his own tribe, like his brothers, delivered the entire city of Keilah from the Philistines, and now Saul's going to come and besiege them, and God tells him, you know what, like, Blood is not thicker than water. They will abandon you. They will, like, surrender you to Saul. They're not going to be loyal to you. You're going to be on your own. You know, and so then David does what's the only rational thing, verse 13. So David and his men, about 600, arose and departed from Keilah, and they went wherever they could go. It's an interesting phrase. Like, they went wherever they could go. So two things happen in that verse. One, in the army that went to Keilah was 400 men. The army that left from Keilah was 600 men. So apparently there was 200 people in the city of Keilah, or at least in the surrounding region, that recognized that, that you know what, God is doing something through this man, David, and who, and who was willing to say, I'm going to give up everything that I had and everything that I clung to and maybe my own, like, everything that I had in this city to join the ranks of David as he wandered wherever he could go. What that phrase means is that he, they, he was just going from place to place, trying to keep a low profile, trying not to get caught by King Saul. They basically said, I'm going to give up my, what I had to follow David, even though he's a fugitive and we're just wandering. You know, it's such an interesting picture of what God does um, in his people. You know, the, I think King David, like Andrew was saying in the communion, like the Old Testament points us forward relentlessly always to Jesus. 
You know, and I think the life of David is the illustration for us of what it means to align ourselves with the true son of David. You know that Jesus says, like, if anyone wants to come after me, what does he need to do? Anybody? Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. We all can, like most of us anyway, can say that. At least three of us could say that. Um, it's always about three people. There's only three people that pay attention every week. Um, I think you all knew where it was going, right? If anyone wants to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. That's what those 200 men of Keilah were doing. They denied themselves. They made some big sacrifices. They joined David, and they wandered wherever they could go. You know, Jesus said this, like speaking about, you know, and, and you've got David who was betrayed by his own people, like he was forsaken by his own people. And, and John, as he opens the gospel of John, which is his account of the life of Jesus, he opens in, with this in, in John 1, verses 10 through 13. He says this, I think I've got it on the screen. I hope so, because I don't have it in my notes. There it is. Talking about Jesus, he was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not come to know him. He came to his own and those who were his own did not receive him. He goes on. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. What John's telling us is that when Jesus came to earth, he came to his own people. He came to his own tribe. He delivered his own tribe. But guess what happened? His own tribe didn't receive him. He says, but to everyone who did receive him, like they were born not of blood. Like there's something that goes deeper than blood connection. They were born of the will of God and they were made children of God. They were made brothers and sisters. You know, and, and if, if, our, if we're going to come to Jesus Christ and be identified with him and be part of his family, we shouldn't be naive and not expect to be treated similarly to him and similarly to David who came before him. In fact, Jesus in John 17, as he's talking to his disciples before he went to the cross, he actually he's not talking to his disciples, he's praying to the Lord before his disciples before he goes to the cross. And he says this, He says, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of this world, even as I am not of this world. Do you hear that? Like the word of God came to the disciples and the word of God like did something in those disciples to make them like Jesus so that they're not of the world just as Jesus is not of the world. And he goes on and explains that even more. He says, um, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. In the midst of all of this kind of like like, uh, rejection, God asks them to be kept from the evil one. They are not of this world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. What he's saying is like when the word of God comes upon my disciples and they're shaped to be like me and the world treats them like they treat me, like the word of God sanctifies them. That means to set them apart and consecrates and makes them different. And as you have sent me into this world, I have sent them into this world. Like we're a pilgrim people who have been shaped by the word of God, like through the person of Jesus Christ to be like him. And, and we shouldn't expect different treatment than Jesus got or different treatment than David got 
who pictured him. David went to his people, delivered his people, and his people rejected him. And what's interesting, what happens here, in case you were wondering if Saul was telling the truth, you know, back in verse, uh, where is it? In verse 7, when, when Saul heard that David was in Keilah, he says, he says what? God has delivered him into my hand. It's really interesting. You've got the king of Israel who just finished butchering the priests of God who is so deluded to say to himself, like, guess what? Like, God's on my side. And it just shows, like, how bitterness and, and hostility and hatred can just twist a person's perceptions. They have, like, no idea what's going on in reality. God has delivered him into my hand. And then in case you were wondering if that was true or not, um, verse 14. And David stood in the wilderness in the strongholds and remained in the hill country in the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul sought him every day, but God did not deliver him into his hand. I think you guys probably already knew that, but we were told explicitly, right? Like God is on David's side. God is going to protect him. God is going to lead him through the valley of the shadow of death because he's, he's God's chosen king. You know, interestingly enough, you know, you have, you have, uh, God protecting David. And then in verse 15, this is where, you know, that God strengthened his king through the least likely source. Look what happens in verse 15. Now David became aware that Saul had come out to seek his life while David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horish. Like sometimes ignorance is bliss, right? Like Saul's hunting David. David's kind of going wherever he can go. And unbeknownst to David, God is protecting him again and again and again. And David has no awareness of it. But then in verse 15, he becomes aware that not only did Saul send assassins after him, like he did back in chapter, I think it's chapter 19. Not only did Saul send assassins after him, but now like all of the mobilized armies of Israel are hunting David. Like there is a nationwide manhunt. You're going to like, you're going to get like the text message, like the emergency like thing, like, like, right? That annoying thing that you get every once in a while. Find David. He's a bad guy, right? There's this nationwide manhunt going on. And as you can imagine, when David becomes aware of it, he becomes fearful. And yet God ministers to him through the most unlikely source. Look what it says in verse 16. And Jonathan, Saul's son, arose and went to David at Horish and, encour- and encouraged him in God. In fact, you know, that, that if you, like we already knew who Jonathan was, if you've been reading the story, but the but the author wanted us to know for like not forget Jonathan was Saul's son. I mean, in an age where we don't have like a royalty, like in our culture today, where we don't have um, uh, like these dynasties of like kings and queens that reign, you know, through their children, where we don't have like even the family loyalty that they had in the ancient world, it's easy for us to overlook it. But the author is pointing out to us that Jonathan is heir to the throne of Saul. He's the one that should be the next king. If anyone should hate David, it's Jonathan. And yet Jonathan is able to find David. And what does he do? He encourages him in God. Like he comes by. And the word is encouraged. The ESV does a better job translating it here for the sake of our our story because it, it uses that word hand again. He strengthens his hand. Like Saul's grasp, you know, came up empty handed as he tried to grab him in, 
and Keilah, and as he hunted him all over the wilderness of Ziph, like Saul just keeps coming up empty and empty and empty every time he tries to grab for David. And yet, then Jonathan shows up and he says to David, you know what, David, like, I'm going to strengthen your hand. Jonathan and, and David had this unlikely friendship that was forged in their mutual commitment to the Lord. And while, while David was abandoned by his own tribe, he was able to find a brother in the, in the very person that should have been against him because of their mutual commitment to Jesus Christ. You know, look what, look what Jonathan does to encourage him. He, he, he tells him a couple things. Verse 17, thus he said to him, do not be afraid because the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. It's an interesting thing that Jonathan's telling him. You know what? Saul, and, he, and he says, Saul, my father. We're going to see that again. Like he's reminding him again, oh, again and again and again. This is the one that I, I should be the one against you. But Saul, my father, the king, will not find you. His hand will not find you. Like David, no matter what it looks like, even though all of the armies of Israel have been mobilized to hunt you down, doesn't matter. Don't be afraid because the hand of Saul will not find you. Why? And you will be king over Israel. Because Jonathan knew what God had promised to David. Jonathan knew that God had anointed David to be the next king. And Jonathan like believed God's word more than all the circumstances around him. And he's like, David... Don't be afraid. Even though Saul's hunting you, don't be afraid because God made promises to you and God always keeps his promises. You will be king. And then he says something remarkable, and I will be next to you. That idea of like second to you is this idea that Jonathan's like, I'm going to place myself under you and I am going to serve you. Even though I'm the one that by legal rights should be king, because I know what God's doing in this world and he's chosen you, I'm going to like submit myself to you and serve you as my king. You know, it's a remarkable thing because what Jonathan does is he, he envisions his future in light of what God his, is doing and what God had promised. And he's going to order his life in light of what God was doing and what God has promised. And, and his ability to come to David, to, to remind him of God's promises, to remind him of his commitment to him, to, to like even submit himself to what God was doing through David is this thing that strengthened David's hands, even though he should be like weak and vulnerable. And then they did something interesting too. It says that they renewed their covenant together. This is in... Um, Verse 18, so the two of them made a covenant before the Lord and David stayed at Horish where Jonathan went to his house. You know, they swore it again. Like this is like, we've seen this over and over again. David and Jonathan swore to be faithful to the Lord and faithful to each other as long as they lived. You know, from the very moment that David and Jonathan met at the battle of, uh, with, where David slew Goliath, it says that Jonathan's heart was knit to David and he loved him as himself. Like Jonathan's love for David was one that fulfilled the law of God, that loved his neighbor as himself. And you see it here, that he came and found David in his hour of fear. He encouraged him in the Lord and he, and he like ordered his life under him because he knew what God was doing. 
And just a side, like, place of exhortation for us as guys, you know, like, there's this crisis, I think, among men in America of, like, godly friendships. And you have the story of David and Jonathan that unfolds. This is the last time, I think, that they ever see each other. It's the last time that's recorded, anyway, of them ever seeing each other. And at this last place, when David was in fear, like, God used one guy to come alongside him, encourage him, remind him of the promises of God, like challenge him by ordering his life in accordance with those things. And David's hand was strengthened. You know, we met last week um, talking about like men's ministry and what that's going to look like going forward. And one of the questions that was going to raise in that, that I think all of you men need to consider is what does, what do godly friendships in the kingdom of God look like? And how are you ordering your life to see those things take place in your life? You know, because I think for a lot of us as men, we just don't have friends like Jonathan in our hour of need. We probably end up just being alone. It's a little side side note about Jonathan. So interestingly enough, you have this promise from Jonathan to David about uh, that God's not going, that the hand of Saul is not going to find him. Um, and apparently Saul couldn't find him because God was keeping him from there. And, and even though Saul couldn't find him, we find out that some people did. Look what happens in verse, uh, verse 19. Then the Ziphites came up to Saul at Gibeah saying, Is David not hiding with us in the strongholds at Horish on the hill of Hekilah, which is on the south of Jeshimon? You guys know where that is, right? Um, I don't know where it is either, but it's real specific. They're like, it's in Yamhill County, just outside of McMinnville, on such and such hill, right? Like, so, so what, the, what they're doing is like, the Ziphites, interestingly enough, are also people from the tribe of Judah. They're worse than the Keolites because the Keolites actually were, like, their city was being threatened to be destroyed. So I, at least I can understand that. Give up one guy so that the whole city could be delivered. Okay. But these guys ha- have nothing to fear. They're just, an op- they're just opportunists. They're like, hey, David's in our turf. Let's tell Saul. We can score some points with Saul by giving him intel. Hey, the guy that you hunt is in our backyard, right? And Saul responds because he's had bad intel before because David keeps slipping out of his hands. Verse 20, they, they keep talking to Saul. Now then, O king, come down and do... Come down according to all the desire of your soul to do so, and our part shall be to surrender him into the king's hand. And Saul said, May you be blessed of the Lord, for you have had compassion on me. Like, (laughs) really? Like, let me just help you as we go into election cycles. Just because a politician invokes like the name of the Lord doesn't mean he's on God's side. Okay, let me just be clear about that. Blessed be the, you are going to be blessed of the Lord as if God cares about Saul's endorsement, right? You've had compassion on me. You know, Saul continues to play himself off as the victim. Like we saw that last week. Like none of you felt sorry for me. Like Saul, can, like, and and all of Saul's problems are from Saul's own making. And yet he plays himself off as the victim. He plays himself off as God's man for the job, as being spiritual. And he's so like warped in his thinking that he just continues to play the religious game. 
verse 22, go now, make more sure and investigate and see where his haunt is and who has seen him there. For I am told that he is very cunning. What he said is, okay, I know exactly what hill he's on, but I want you to go there and spy on him. And I want to know where he goes, goes and gets his water. I want to know where he goes to the bathroom. I want you to check his metadata on his phone. I want to know exactly where he is all the time. That's what he's saying. And so they do. So they, they, the Ziphites are all into this. And so they do. Um, verse 23. So look and learn all the hiding places where he hides himself and return with me with certainty and I will go with you. And it shall come about if he is in the land that I will search him out among all the thousands of Judah. Then they arose and went to Ziph before Saul. Now David and his men were in the wilderness of Maon in the Arabah to the south of Jeshimon. They were right exactly where they were supposed to be. And you have the Ziphites going on there and spying and giving Saul specific and like like specific and detailed intel of exactly where he is. Jonathan had just told, like David, Saul, the hand of Saul will not find you. But the Ziphites did, and the Ziphites turned him over and gave exact detailed, like, like GPS locations of where David is. Things are looking bad. Like what's going to happen to David is kind of the, the, the circumstances we're supposed to be wondering here. When Saul and his men went to seek him, they told David, and he came down to the rock and stayed in the wilderness of Maon. And when Saul heard it, he pursued David in the wilderness of Maon. And Saul went on one side of the mountain, and David and his men on the other side of the mountain. And David was hurrying away, hurrying to get away from Saul, for Saul and his men were surrounding David and his men to seize them. So apparently David got caught flat-footed. Saul and his armies appeared, there, and David is running away. And if you were to look at the map, we don't need to put it up for a second time today. Like David in his wilderness, they're being pursued and pushed towards the Dead Sea. They're being pushed out into the desert. If you've ever seen pictures of like around Masada, as far as you can see, it's just dirt. And then you get to the sea, and it's like salt water. You can't even drink it. So David's being pursued towards the Dead Sea. And at one moment, Saul's so close that David's on one side of a hill, and Saul and his armies are on another side of the hill, and his armies are encircling the hill to try to close in on David in this pincher movement. Like, I, I said this a couple of weeks ago, like the breath of King Saul was on the back of David's neck, and he's fleeing for his life towards the Dead Sea, where he's probably going to get entrapped by these armies. Jonathan had just said, the hand of Saul will not find you. And here we have the armies of Israel surrounding him and him about to be crushed in between their jaws. It's interesting. Jonathan didn't say the armies of Israel won't find you. or He didn't even say Saul won't find you. He said the hand of King Saul won't find you. Like you will not fall under Saul's power. You will not fall into his grip. You will not fall under his control, even though it looks like everything is closing in around you and you will be crushed by it. The hand of Saul will not find you because you will be king. And the story just has this kind of anticlimactic ending. Verse 27, but the messenger came to Saul, like right as this is about to close in, he's finally got David in his grasp. Hurry and come for the Philistines have made a raid on the land. Like all the armies of Israel are pursuing David. And so the Philistines are like, hey, good opportunity. Let's go attack the land. The messengers come. And so Saul at that point is forced to break off the attack and go like try to stop 
the Philistines. God uses the Philistine armies to accomplish his purposes to save King David when it looked like all hope was lost. You know, as we wrap up here, you know, I think that there's there's some things that we just need to take comfort in. You know, first of all, like, like God was going to accomplish his purposes in David because he had made promises to David. And there, were, there was nothing that was going to keep those from, from happening. And even when it looked like Saul had found him, like David was never under his power. He was never in his hand. It reminds me of Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2 where he's preaching to the people of Israel and he's talking about King David um, and and how David points forward to Christ. And in Acts chapter 2 verse 24, it says this. I think I have it on the screen. He says, I'll turn there in case I don't. Acts chapter 2 verse 24, he says... Well, I'll start reading at verse 23. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man delivered up by the predetermined plan and the foreknowledge of God, you nailed to the cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. And it looked like that Jesus, the Messiah, had been captured. Right? You nailed him to a tree. You put him to death. The next verse is so great. And God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Right? Even though death had caught up to to Jesus, even though death had nailed him to the tree, death never had him in his power. God raised him up again. And then it goes on later on in the sermon, um, verse 33. It says, Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out um, forth this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. You know, it's God's deliverance of Jesus and his victory over the grave that proves that he, like, he is Lord of all things. He is Christ, and all things will be under his feet. Jesus is the one with all authority. You know, and as followers of Jesus Christ, those 600 men that were with David, they didn't get killed either. They got delivered too. They got to sing the song that that David wrote. They got to like celebrate at that rock called the rock of escape because they aligned themselves with God's chosen king. You know, I don't know what circumstances you guys are facing. You know, some of you are facing health crisis. Some of you are facing like personal crisis. Some of you are feeling like the jaws of the enemy are closing in on you and you're going to be crushed by them. And I, you know, I hope you have friends around you that can do like Jonathan. They can remind you of the promises of God. Remind you of the fact that it's in the son of David, Jesus Christ, that there's safety. Continue to point you to him. Because in Jesus Christ, the enemy will not find us and we will not fall into his hand. 
You know, Brian, why don't you come up to close us? And let me just read. It reminds me of the end of 2 Timothy that we just finished a couple weeks ago. But when Paul, like, is ending his life, and, and both in life and in, in death he served the Lord, Paul was able to testify. These are some of the last words he ever wrote for us. In 2 Timothy 4, he says this, At my first defense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. Kind of sounds familiar, right? May it not be counted against them, but the Lord stood with me and strengthened me so that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished and that all the Gentiles might hear. And I was rescued out of the lion's mouth. Now listen, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. And it's only in Jesus Christ that there's safety. It's only in Jesus Christ, regardless of the circumstances. Paul wrote that from prison as he awaited his own execution. It's only in Jesus Christ that there's deliverance. Like maybe not be those who out of fear or out of like ambition or whatever, like deny Christ, but it must be those who like align ourselves to him, submit to him as king, worship him, because it's in him that there's rescue, it's in him that there's safety, and it's in him that there's life. He will deliver us safely to his heavenly kingdom. So Brian, why don't you close this? You know, as we close, I just want to read um, one more section out of Peter's sermon. Um, P- Peter said this in Acts chapter 2, For David says of Jesus, I was always beholding the Lord in my presence, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue exulted. Moreover, my flesh will also abide in hope because you will not abandon my soul to Hades nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life and you will make me full of gladness in your presence. You know, David spoke that about Jesus Christ and it's true of all of us who find our life in Jesus Christ too. So may we leave here in... in um, walking in the life that comes from following Jesus. You guys are dismissed. Thanks for coming.